Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You're listening to the Co Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for nearly the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, in the interest of describing things as weird, this was a strange weekend in combat sports, as you had the UFC down there at the Apex for a fight night event headlined by Song Yudong's fifth round TKO win over Ricky Simone. But honestly, most eyes over the weekend were on BKFC, who put on a relatively high-profile event featuring a bevy of people that are recognizable to MMA fans. Mike Perry defeats Luke Rockhold. Eddie Alvarez defeats Chad Mendez. Ben Rothwell gets a win. Conor McGregor, for some reason, was on hand and was called into the BKFC ring, absconded with a BKFC belt that he took up there to jaw with Mike Perry. We will talk about all of that stuff on this show. Not every day that we spend a lot of time talking about BKFC on this podcast, because I don't know if it can be said that either you or I truly appreciate the bare knuckle fisticuffs. But we, you know, we got no choice this week. It was the biggest combat sports thing of the weekend. So we'll spend a little time talking about that. We'll look ahead to next weekend's UFC 288, and we will spend a scant few minutes talking about this UFC fight night on Saturday night. I understand, though, Ben, that you conducted a very scientific social media experiment over the weekend. Yes, I did. Yes, I did, Chad. So what I decided to do was... To basically do nothing at all and see what happens. To basically say, I'm not going to seek out any information on any of the fight sports happenings this weekend. I'm just going to go about my normal life and I'm going to see what finds its way to me. Mm -hmm. Because we had that conversation on Friday's Power Hour about, holy shit, is BKFC the most interesting thing happening in combat sports this weekend on a weekend where you had, you know, another UFC fight night event. And I was like, let's just see, because sometimes, you know, ever since I got on my program of 
mostly not watching a lot of the UFC Fight Night stuff live. Watch it, wait until Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon to catch up on it. So then I don't have to sit through all the filler. And for a time, the struggle was always, how hard do I want to try to avoid spoilers? Yeah. I want to just tell myself I'm not opening Twitter. I'm not opening anything until I have a chance to watch the UFC. And I went back and forth, tried a couple different approaches. This time I was like, I'm not doing anything different. Let me just see what I end up learning kind of against my own will. And let me tell you, it was kind of incredible because it felt like I learned everything about what happened at BKFC and nothing about what happened at the UFC fight night. It just felt like I managed to go through my normal life. Granted, it's not like I was sitting there Saturday night on Twitter the whole time. Like I had social engagements and whatnot that I was going about my daily life doing. But I realized at some point Sunday where I was like, holy shit, I don't even know who won. The UFC Fight Night main event. I didn't have to avoid spoilers. They just avoided me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I had to go look at I did not know who won until I went and looked it up on ESPN Plus and watched the fight. And it was just like, okay, that feels kind of significant. Because it felt like if people had been talking about it, then I would have not been able to miss it. It would have got there to me. The same way all the BKFC stuff. Because not only did I know who won these fights, but I was like... Oh, shit, Conor McGregor was there? Oh, shit, Luke Rockhold lost via broke-ass tooth? Oh, you know, like, oh, shit, Ben Rothwell won, but as often happens in a BKFC fight, you wouldn't know that just by looking at his face. Right. You know, all that kind of stuff managed to very easily filter down to me, and yet not even basic info on the UFC fight night did. Which you- tells you, like, it seems like that there's a little, maybe a little bit of a shift in how people perceive some of these. Yeah, and you know what's amazing about that is that your social media experience is curated to, I assume, have a ton of MMA journalists and MMA news gatherers represented yeah. in your follows. So it's most it's that and hentai. It's a lot of hentai, <laughs> but those two things, and there's there's more crossover than you'd think. But yeah, that's the thing is that you would think like I would just find out about just because of how many UFC beat writers and stuff I follow on Twitter. But you know, it's still it's like it felt like the BKFC shit was what people were more interested in and more interested in talking about yeah well i mean that is an interest an interesting point and i think it's going to come up later as we continue to talk this week about this big night for bkfc and maybe a somewhat quiet night in the world of mixed martial arts before we get into any of that though remember you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper this show drops for free every monday afternoon in your timelines and podcast libraries don't forget to smash that subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you listen to Look, man, we're just trying to save you some time here. Just subscribe to the show, show so it shows up every week for free in your podcast library. It's like magic. Seriously, you're going to love it. Ben, it's a very exciting time for the CME right now, because next week, in observance with this podcast's 11th birthday, first of all, Ben, we've been doing this shit for 11 years. This podcast is older than any of our children. Yeah. It's it's crazy. It is one of the longest relationships that I have had in my life. Longest and frankly most personally destructive, yeah, I feel. But also enriching somehow. Uh it's a special time for the show and a special time of the year when we remind you guys that we can't make this show without your support. 
we don't have the backing of an MMA website or a podcast network or really even our own families. This is just two guys making a show. We record the show. We produce the audio. We pay for the hosting. We chase down the advertising. We do everything. So in order to keep that train on the tracks for another year, we take this month to ask you to please, please, please consider joining us over at the patreon.com slash co-main event. It's CME Patreon Pledge Month, and that's going to run from May 8th until June 5th. You know all about the CME Patreon page. Ben and I are over there churning out literally hours of extra content all week. We run a show every day of the work week, except Tuesday. And if you haven't already, this month is your chance to check it out. Maybe you're a longtime listener and you're looking to take your support to the next level. Maybe you just started listening and you want to be behind the paywall with the cool kids. Maybe you're a former patron who took a little break, drifted away for a bit. Well, there's no better time to come back to the family. We'll have a lot of cool stuff going on this month for Pledge Month. Hey, though, no reason to wait. Check us out right now at patreon.com slash co-main event. You know, just see what the fuss is about. Just go over there and see what the fuss is about. Also, Chad, I don't want to alarm anybody. Uh, You know, we want to keep things uplifting and positive here on CME Patreon Pledge Month, but there have been rumors that a corporate entity is attempting a hostile takeover oh, of the no. CME. Oh boy, it's like succession up in here. It's exactly like succession. It's, it's exactly like it. Uh we we very desperately need the help of our listeners to fend off this corporate takeover. Uh we'll have more information coming about these threats. Uh you know, I didn't even want to say anything, but it's gotten serious enough that I feel like we have to address those rumors. Uh we don't want that to happen. We want to keep the discourse unfettered. Yeah, But we need the help of the people out there in order to make that happen. It's going to be the co-main event podcast brought to you by Waystar Royco any any week now. Remember, uh, we got music this week from CME listener and beloved patron Doug Ty, a.k.a. Spider Fighting. He describes his music as instrumental beat music that straddles the non-existent line between aging indie dork and backpack boom bap. Backpack boom bap. And I think it's pretty cool. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash spiderfighting. That's all one word, spiderfighting. Three rounds as usual this week in the Coming Event Podcast. In round number one, it was almost certainly the biggest weekend in BKFC history. And that's not necessarily a sentence I thought I'd ever say on this podcast. And in round number two, Bilal Muhammad gets his shot at elite contender status when he takes on the very busy Gilbert Burns. Is this a number one contender fight, or do we just keep getting those chances to Colby Covington? And in round number three, the former king returns. The man who never lost the belt, Henry Cejudo, comes out of his kinda, sorta, maybe worked himself into a shoot retirement to take on all Jermaine Sterling. Woo! It's gonna be a doozy. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our guy, Darkwing Duck, who writes, Last night at the Apex, the number nine bantamweight beat the number 10 bantamweight 
or something like that. I honestly didn't take the time to double check the numbers because let's be honest, it doesn't really matter. In the main event of another UFC fight night that almost certainly nobody watched. Guys, we're getting dangerously close to if a tree falls in the woods territory here. How long can this go on before the whole thing falls apart? As two men who continue to host and I can only assume profit on, an MMA podcast, how worried are you that this whole machine may be set to self-destruct? Ben, how much time do you spend worrying about it? There was a time where I would, I don't know if I sat around and worried about it, but there was a time when that ranked more highly on my concerns. But honestly, that time was a while ago now. Because I think what we've seen at this point is there is a certain basement there's there's a there's a point at which the UFC could really not put in much effort and it's still going to get this certain level of interest engagement and and attention and the point w- when i worried about it more was remember back when lorenzo fertita accidentally said the quiet part out loud when he was basically like we've figured out that we can be more profitable and make more money by offering a more diluted product. It's not a, it's not a, an exact quote. Yeah. But he basically said, "Okay, yeah, we understand that you look at the product that we are putting out now and see that it is of a lower quality or a lower interest for you the fans, but that's not what we're trying to do here. What we're trying to do is make more money basically, and we figured out that this is a way to do it." And they're right. Yeah. They were absolutely right about that. And they continue to just double down on that strategy in so many different ways and got wildly more profitable in the process of doing that. Did they grow the audience? Not really. You know, like they they hit a point where they went from growth mode to cash out mode, like growth mode to just like how much money can you extract from the thing mode? And once you make that switch, I don't know if you really ever go back. Yeah. And I I think that at this point, it's not just the UFC either. We're living in such a fractured media environment where the, if your focus is on, let's just get more and more viewers, attract more and more people to this thing. Almost nobody is really thinking that way right now in sports, entertainment. Everybody's thinking more about like, how do we just more viciously and aggressively monetize the thing yeah. based on the the level of interest and viewers that we have right now. And so the the extent to which I worried that you might be undergoing a shift in how you approach it that's going to hurt the long-term interest of the sport, that was years ago. And granted, like we've talked a lot about how the actual ability of the fighters themselves has gotten better and better. The quality of the product overall that the UFC puts out or like the the even interest that the UFC has in promoting any one fighter has gotten way, way lower. Uh, but it also seems like to an extent it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And I think you're still even though you have these nights like this. And this one did seem like he hit kind of a new low in some ways, either because of what else was going on or just the lack of interest in what was the UFC had, where you're just like, okay, you you basically found a way to take a major league baseball game and turn it into a minor league game in, as far in terms of how people react to it. But I still think you can come back 
you know, a month later with a big fight card, maybe even this week with a the pay-per-view fight card, and people will go, okay, now I care again because you got some of the people that I care more about yeah. who are fighting. The, the, the danger is that you're just going to go too long between those. You're going to have too many of these kinds of fights and not enough of the other kinds of fights. People are going to tune out and you won't get, be able to get them back in. But I think that they've also programmed enough people to just think that Saturdays are when their UFC is on. And I don't care who it is, even if I never heard of those people, maybe even if I didn't care about them three months ago when they were fighting in a different organization, I care about them now because it's in the UFC. I think that they've got that in enough people's heads that it's it's not going anywhere. Yeah, I continue to say that the greatest trick the UFC ever pulled was figuring out how to drag the MMA industry into the mainstream, the quote-unquote mainstream, and figure out a way to do it so that nobody else profited besides them, right? Like the UFC at this point has billion-dollar revenue every year. The fighters don't get paid that much more. In fact, in some years, I feel like they get paid less according to the, the specific percentage of what they get paid in terms of total revenue. The sponsors have all but dried up. The media is decimated, barely exists anymore. And here's the UFC, just turning the crank and spraying money everywhere around the UFC offices. In my opinion, it's the dominant storyline in MMA over the last decade. And I've said this before, but I kind of don't understand why it doesn't get more attention in the MMA media sphere. And maybe it's just because it's such a big picture story. Like you kind of have to view it from 30,000 feet in order to talk about it. And maybe it's because it's just essentially and arguably the dominant storyline in all of professional sports over the last decade or so. But the fact that the UFC figured out that they are in a quantity over quality business about 10 years ago and totally went all in on abandoning their former business model in terms of in, in exchange for creating content for a streaming surface and kind of like uh, results be damned. And it has worked out great for them and kind of poorly for everyone else. And, you know, if you are just interested in watching two guys fight, any two guys, then this is a great time for you, man. And I don't know that there's yeah. any better example of that than Song Yidong taking on Ricky Simone on Saturday, which as Darkwing Duck pointed out was something like the number 10 versus the number nine bantamweight in the world fighting for uh, slippery stakes at best, slippery undefined stakes at best. But this was a good fight just physically. If you want to talk about the the punchy, kicky, technical aspect of it, it was kind of entertaining to watch Song Yedong kind of figure Ricky Simone out over the course of, what was it, 23 minutes or something like that? You know, started timing the jab, started coming back with the counters, started uh, going to the body, hitting him in the liver, leg kicks and all that, foiling the takedown attempts. From a stylistic standpoint, this is what you get from the UFC. If you just want to watch two random guys have a fairly entertaining high-level MMA fight. That's what you get from most of these main events of of fight nights. Song Yudong also engaged in a little Dundasso, you know, punched Ricky Simone right in the groin. That's not something you see every day, the uppercut to the groin. That doesn't yeah. happen in MMA that often. A couple of clashes of heads. Uh, but in the end, he comes out with the fifth-round stoppage, fairly dynamic, uh, and looks good doing it. And, you know, if that's what you're here for, you got it. 
you got it in in uh, with exclamation points on it over the weekend. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Cheesy P, who writes, Apparently, there is a Saudi Arabia-based superfight boxing card in the works that will feature Tyson Fury versus Usyk and Anthony Joshua versus Wilder. Now, why did we go with full names on the first guy and only no last idea. name? Okay. Uh, no idea. That's happening in December, according to Joshua. If this is true, what the fuck now for Francis Ngannou? I know you guys said time remains to be seen with him, but if he left the UFC just to go fight in one championship, I don't know, maybe time to send that you up text to the UFC one of these nights. Now, we have talked about this a couple of times before. I don't remember if it's on this show or over behind the Patreon paywall, but I do feel a little worried about what's going on with Francis Ngannou, and the more time that passes, the more I start to become a little worried. We saw this last week, Chatri Sichitong from one championship said that they were committed to making the biggest offer to Francis Ngannou and that they were going to have a meeting. And then they had the meeting. And in the wake of the meeting, it sounds like Chatri was pretty much like, well, we made him the best offer we could. And and now it's in the Lord's hands, essentially. So well, he is a lot less <laughs> bullish coming out of the meeting than he was going into it. And I know you have to take everything Chatri says with a giant grain of salt, but at the same time, I think it's still very possible that Francis Ngannou comes across with a really big deal. And, and it's important, I think, that he makes the most money that he possibly can for his next fight, whether it be in boxing or MMA. But the more time that goes on, the more it starts to feel like less of a slam dunk than it seemed like when he first walked away. Well, the thing where Chatri came out today, and it seemed like doing a little bit of grandstanding and trying to get yourself some headlines and maybe like present things in a certain mode when you know you're not going to manage to sign Francis Ngannou. We made a big deal about we are withdrawing uh, from the Francis Ngannou sweepstakes essentially. And according to what I saw from Ariel Hawani where he was saying basically that like it sounds like maybe Francis Ngannou has a verbal commitment to somebody and that entered into the negotiations with one and told them, okay, look, here's what I seems like it's going to happen for me. Here's where I'm at. And they basically, here's the quote. I think Chatri wanted to do a deal with Francis is my understanding. Came to the realization that he can't do a deal with him because he had this verbal commitment. He's very close and could even be signed this week. He tells me that there, and this is the MMA side of his deal. There's an MMA component and a boxing component. So maybe one championship was like, okay, we're not going to win this uh, Francis Ngannou bidding war. But let's make it look like it was our idea. Yeah. You know, which would be kind of in keeping of how we've come to think of Chatri and the way they do things over there. So uh, it seems to me, I guess it seems a little bit cheap, a little, little bit of cheap heat that they're getting off of France and gone through there, but fine, whatever. The I think a lot of MMA people, they're so nervous about this that they are ready to see this as a colossal blunder. When just if, if Francis doesn't leave the UFC and immediately fall into a Scrooge McDuck like pile of money, there's a lot of MMA fans who are ready to be like, aha, you fucked up. You should have just taken whatever the UFC saw fit to give you and said thank you and moved on. And honestly, the thing that he was angling for in any way was like a big time boxing match, the kind of big time boxing match that you might only need to do one of to make more money than you would in a career with the UFC. And even if that takes a year, two years to come together, if it comes together in the end, then it doesn't matter. You win, you know, 
I think that that's the part that people are losing sight of because they're looking around and being like, where are you going to sign? You're not going to sign with one championship. Maybe you're not going to sign with Bellator or something. And it's like, yeah, but if I'm Francis Ngannou or if I'm somebody advising Francis Ngannou, I'm saying like, hey, I'm not. we don't need to rule MMA out. But if we're looking for that one big, huge payday, MMA is not necessarily where we're going to make it. Yeah. And even if these other four guys are all going to have a deal to fight each other, somebody going to want to fight Francis Ngannou. Both because they probably think that it's an easier fight than the rest of the other guys. He's the new figure in there. He could help bring in a, a audience share that is currently outside of the, the boxing bubble when it comes to selling pay-per-views in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's just like a, a fun, new, interesting thing that you'd get a lot of attention for. So it's not like... I don't I don't think that those people are, are looking at me like, I don't have any interest in fighting Francis Gunn. They do. They would love to. And it, everybody would make a whole bunch of money off of that. Yeah. First of all, I am offended that you would even mention the word grandstanding and Chatri Sichutung's name in the same sentence. <laughs> the disrespect, Ben, folks. I don't even know where you're getting claims such as that. Second of all, like if... Ariel Helwani is essentially saying Francis may have a verbal agreement on the MMA side of things. That sounds like great news if you're worried about Francis coming out of this thing not having any deal at all. And if it ain't 1FC, doesn't seem like there are a lot of other options besides a couple that we could count easily on one hand. So that might give us a bit of a clue as to what he is thinking Second of all, the idea that maybe there is some Saudi money coming into boxing doesn't seem like a terrible thing for Francis either. Oh, now there's a bunch more money floating around. That seems great. And as you said, if we have this mega card, if this actually happens, you know, uh, a couple of those guys are going to win and a couple of those guys are going to lose and everybody's going to be looking for for something to do after. So I agree that it's, it's, you know, maybe rosier than I had first thought. Next yeah, question this I'm, week. Oh, I'm, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't want to yeah, cut you off. Say, I don't need to cut you off. You go say your piece there, brother. I just feel like people just need to calm down a little bit. Like, if they're worried that Francis Ngannou has fucked up, left the UFC, and is now just going to be riding the rails, essentially, like going from town to town. <laughs> like, does anybody stiff? here have, a, have an MMA promotion that I could fight for? Uh, my price has come way down. Like, I just don't worry about it. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. You know? I mean, you can really see the UFC loyalists out there too. When this when this topic comes out, it's it's uh it's pretty easy to pick them out of the crowd. Yeah. Uh, next question this week comes to us from I'm the dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and this one classic is, Tropic Thunder reference. This one is going to segue us into our round one discussion about BKFC. We also have some other emails coming up that we're going to sprinkle into the rounds here from some listeners that I just thought would work better that way. But here's, here's what I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude says you keep talking like I'm going to like it, but Nope, I just can't stomach bare knuckle fighting. Is it just me or do the fighters look way more fucked up after a BKFC fight versus any other MMA fight? Chad Mendes and Eddie Alvarez look like they just got into a fight with a lawnmower and lost. I don't know how a career in this can be sustained for a long period of time. So why do former fighters and now former UFC champs think this is the way to end a career? Am I wrong to think we really shouldn't be encouraging this? Please discourse. Now, I don't know if he means us specifically or if this just is an open-ended rhetorical address to the fight sports community at large. Because I feel like 
that we have been pretty upfront, especially me, about saying not crazy about the bare knuckle fighting. We went to see some of it live in Great Falls. And my main takeaway was that not only is it kind of gross, but it's also really hard to see what's happening in the actual fights because, you know, it's fast and furious boxing action. You can't really, they get into these wild exchanges. You can't really tell if anybody got hit. And then the next thing you know, somebody's leaking. Somebody's got blood coming out of their eyebrow. So uh, from a spectator standpoint, it's not totally my thing. We also discussed though last week, Ben Rothwell, I think, raising some at least debatable points about whether or not MMA or bare knuckle fighting was safer. He seemed to think BKFC is safer than MMA in some ways. He is also now a bare knuckle fighter, so perhaps he has a reason to make that case. But, you know, he may be onto something that you look more cosmetically fucked up after a BKFC fight because, again, you don't have gloves on your hands. But remember... Gloves were not designed to protect your face or your brain from trauma. They were designed to keep your hands from breaking so that you can fight longer and they prevent superficial cuts. In BKFC, you get cut, you get dinged up, but who knows what's happening from a brain trauma standpoint. I realize we are probably splitting hairs and we start talking about which combat sport is safer. Yeah, uh, but it's all relative. And then, you know, the, the other addendum to that is that these I don't think anybody's trying to make a long career out of BKFC, regardless of what they might say publicly. I think they're all thinking uh, we can make money doing this. And there's been some people saying that they are making more money fighting in BKFC than they did in the UFC. And that's why you would see guys thinking that they would end their careers doing this. Yeah, I mean, I I understand the point that the dude disguised as a dude, dressed up as another dude, whatever he's trying to make here, that especially if you are enough of a combat sports lifer as a fan, that you've know you you've gotten to the point where you're already a little bit worried about the damage and exploitation inherent in this sport, and then you're like, oh, okay, here's a, I've heard of this place as a good landing spot for ex-UFC guys, let me go check out what they're doing, oh god, good god! There's, they all look like a fucking monster movie by the end. Uh, people's teeth getting knocked out and their faces all split open several different ways. How is this better? I can understand how you'd do that. But I also feel like the the cosmetic stuff is, uh, you know, c- the cuts that can get stitched closed, that's, that's not as big a deal as, you know, people who are like, well, my spine is all fucked up from years and years of grappling. Or... You know, the the brain trauma stuff that uh, I've endured more of because I'm not only the training, but then also the fighting with the, the gloves and basically being hit by a guy who has a cast on his hand, essentially, like right there in your skull, being kicked upside your damn head. Like, none of this shit is good for you. Let's be clear on that. Uh, some of it might be worse for you in specific ways or other ways. It, it is kind of splitting hairs at some point. I can understand why somebody would be like, just visually and viscerally, I'm not enjoying watching people pour out blood with the bare knuckle shit. It is selling a certain kind of appeal. And that appeal is, it's not not freak show appeal, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like it's guys, you know, are going to do this thing that is fucking batshit crazy. That's a big part of the appeal. And I think we all kind of realize that. And when you're watching it, it does feel like a more extreme version of the fight sports that you kind of 
have gotten used to and that maybe, you know, would be really shocking to you if it was the first time you saw somebody get kicked in the face. But you've seen it so many times that it doesn't have an effect on you anymore. But then you go and you watch these guys where their hands, their bare fists are clearly coated in each other's blood and they're still flinging them at each other's face. That's still shocking because we have not seen a ton of that yet. But I don't think that necessarily means that it is significantly worse for you in the ways that really matter. And on that note, we will get into our first round discussion of BKFC. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast for a future listener mail segment, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and you click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, it's BKFC time. Round one begins now. a series of individual one-line emails from our guy George at BKFC. And this is the first time in the history of this show that this has happened, that someone has basically live emailed their way to the podcast through a fighting event. Just like as the evening goes on, we get these like one-line dispatches from George. First of all, thanks to George for sending these because I'm about to read them. Second of all, I don't know if we want to encourage this as a way to communicate <laughs> with the podcast, but in the case of this, you B- kind of are encouraging yeah, it. No, you know? In the case of this BKFC event, uh, it seems great. So I'm going to read these individual emails from George, which I think set the stage for BKFC. His first email says fighter sightings, Curtis blades, cowboy Cerrone, Justin Gaethje. His second email says, this place is shockingly full. His third email says, the Dark Lord did not get the pop he deserves. His next email says, just just save these all up and put them all in one email. Let me read the emails, dude. Okay. the The next email says, these fights go so fast. The next email says, this dude with a single t shirt cannon is so lame. Now, there's one more email that is going to guide us into the actual conversation about BKFC, but just as a compliment to George at BKFC, I have to say, you and I, as I said earlier in the show, attended a BKFC event in Great Falls, and George's thoughts accurately sum up the the live viewing experience. There is a moment when you're like, this place is shockingly full, and there is also a moment where you're like... Oh, there's a guy I recognize. There's Dan Mergliotta over there. I know who he is. Oh, look, there's Michelle Watterson. She's working the corner of this one random uh, bare knuckle fighter. And then there is a moment where you're like, wait, what the fuck is going on? They're throwing out t-shirts now? Jesus. So yeah, I mean, 
George is describing the BKFC experience here. He's just doing it in uh, the form of a prose poem. Yeah, he's also doing it as if we're sitting next to him at the event, like now, this guy with the that, T-shirt. Camera. That actually does happen a lot in terms of the emails. People will send us emails <laughs> where I'm like, oh, this person thinks we're watching along with them. Uh, but usually I can ferret out what they mean. I guess it makes sense that uh, for the one in Denver that you would have certain MMA uh, luminaries there who, you know, kind of when you start thinking about it, kind of a lot of them who live in the area. So that makes sense that you get them there. I mean, ha- seeing Conor McGregor there, where it's just like, what? what? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Conor McGregor's at a BKFC event in Denver? Like, okay, I guess. That's unexpected. But I, honestly... Uh, how do you come away from a weekend like this not feeling encouraged if you're BKFC? Because you seem like you're starting to pick up traction as not only a thing that fans are interested in, but a thing that where the fighters are they're showing up to your thing. That's a place to see and be seen. Uh, and especially if you can turn it into a thing where it's like, okay, hey, this sh- crazy shit you've heard of might be coming to your town. Uh, that's kind of exactly where you want to be yeah. if you are a, a fight sports promoter who's not one of the established biggies, you know? I, for one, would love to see a point-by-point TikTok of Conor McGregor's time in Denver. Just like what he did from the moment he arrived to the moment he left. I think that would be fascinating. It's like I said at the beginning of the show, man, this was BKFC's biggest night in the history of bare-knuckle fighting. Now, will it turn out to be a long-term thing or is it just a fad? I don't know. But this seemed like a great night for them when you could roll out all of these recognizable UFC names and get some attention out of it. And then I will, the first thing I saw when I woke up Sunday morning was a video of Mike Perry and Conor McGregor having a half congratulatory, collegial, half adversarial face down, face off in the middle of the ring. And I was just, I was stunned. I didn't know what to think of it. And regardless of whether Conor McGregor ever were to set foot as a competitor inside the BKFC ring, which let's just go ahead and say probably won't happen, but the guy's also a complete fucking lunatic, so we can't rule anything out. But just having him do that is good for BKFC, regardless of whether or not he ever shows his face around there again. This is just a big a big moment yeah. for them. That's a win, just to have the guy. Uh, that Even just to be able to attract the views via social media that you can get as soon as you post some shit, be like Conor McGregor in our ring with one of the belts over his shoulder. Uh, I mean, yeah, that that helps you a whole lot. And, you know, think about the effect that it has on other fighters who not only think as in terms of thinking about BKFC as a legit thing to consider, but like as a, a fixture in the world of yeah. combat sports yeah. that... Sounds legit. And the other thing that helps is like when you hear a lot of these fighters talking about like, hey, I'm making really good money over here. And, you know, I'm going to show up with OnlyFans sponsorship on my shorts and like all this other kind of shit. Like, it's still going to be an extreme thing that's not for everybody, either as a viewer or a participant. But it helps to have like fighters, people we know talking about like, okay, yeah, I went over there, did this thing made some pretty good money also maybe got my face all fucked up also maybe the the modeling career is put on hold a little bit after you do come out of the bkfc ring but stuff like that i think gradually has an effect on everybody in the sort of ecosystem of the sport yeah 
Well, you know who else got a big win aside from BKFC itself? That would be Mike Perry, because not only does he defeat Luke Rockhold via chipped tooth in their uh, BKFC fight, but then he reveals, well, he has the face off with Conor McGregor, which is also great for Mike Perry. He reveals after the fight, this was the last bout on his contract. He is now a free agent, which in many ways, I think you could position Mike Perry as betting on himself and winning. And the question is, what does this do for him? Does he, is he able to garner a bigger contract for some bare knuckle organization? Does he go back to MMA? Can he become a legitimate boxer? So I don't know, unexpectedly, at least to me, it feels like Mike Perry might have a lot of options. And I'll, I'll be real frank. If I'm BKFC, I'm trying to keep that dude. Because yeah. Mike Perry is like the living, walking personification of what your whole shit is. And you, yes. sh- you should try to keep him around. And when you watch him in this fight with Luke Rockhold, you're like, man, Mike Perry was always a bare knuckle boxer. We just didn't know it. <laughs> Maybe he didn't Maybe, know it. Yeah. Like, he... He is the just living embodiment of everything that BKFC is and can be. And especially you see him in a fight with somebody like Luke Rockhold, or you saw him in that fight with MVP where you're like, I'm not convinced that you're a technically better fighter than these other guys, but you are absolutely made for the insane world of BKFC because he it fits his style especially with the sort of small space that they have to work in there doesn't really seem to mind getting hit in the face uh does it seems like okay we're if we just turn it into a contest to see who cares more about their physical bodies and protecting them uh it won't be me yeah it won't be me taking out my mouthpiece and being like my tooth is all fucked up i want to go home uh because mike perry just shows up ready to be fucked up and it's like before bare knuckle boxing as a thing existed, Mike Perry laid in wait for it. He just, he's just like a, a dormant sleeper cell waiting to be activated. And so, yeah, I would think that they would want to make a deal with him. I also, I want to spare a moment to give a shout out to the big homie, the Dark Lord, Ben Rothwell, who remains underappreciated when it comes to cutting a post fight promo. Yeah, he does. You know, he really does. He's going to get on the mic, start talking to Alan Belcher. And he's just like, okay, yeah, like that guy, there, there's a guy who has spent some nights in front of the bathroom mirror thinking about what he's going to say. Yeah. Not just going to go up there. I'll take whoever they give me happy to be here. No, he's got, he's got some stuff in mind. Yeah. Uh, ben Rothwell, by the way, wins by corner stoppage. He was a minus 600 favorite in that fight. So that's not a surprise, but as you and I have talked about and like you just said about Mike Perry, it also could well be true that Ben Rothwell has found his lane in terms of just being huge and punching other people in the face super hard and perhaps being a hard out for most of the other people who would be interested in bare knuckle fighting. Luke Rockhold bows out of this thing with a chipped tooth, broke one of his teeth in half. Uh, It looked like he had some stitches in his lip as well. You go into a bare knuckle fighting fight. Now, I'm not trying to be too critical or, or, uh, you know, question Luke Rockhold here. But like, isn't having a broken tooth like a thing that you should just be like, well, I might break some of my teeth off in this bare knuckle fight. That's a thing that could happen. And then, you know, that's curtains. Curtains for Luke Rockhold. It seemed like 
he, I don't know if it was just the tooth. It seemed like maybe he just felt like he was done there. Yeah. Because his body language started to change there at some point in that round where it just seemed like he, like for a moment there, it seemed like he was trying to get a little, like trying to bait his way into a stoppage on the low blow because he had gotten one earlier in the fight and then seemed like he was trying to be like, I have hit low again and then was told, no, keep going. And it seemed like maybe he just was getting to a point and had absorbed enough physical damage. Because you're right, especially stuff like the thing with the tooth. I mean, and who knows exactly how it felt. You can't see your own teeth at the thing. You might think it's much worse than it is. Uh, but you would think, okay, we're going into a bare-knuckle boxing fight. Maybe we would have to make our peace with some, some cosmetic damage being done. But also, once the tooth is broken, uh, you know, it's not going to affect your ability to stand in there and throw them things. Right. And it's not like it's going to be suddenly fixed if you stop fighting. Like, once it's already broken, you might as well keep going. But it seemed like that was just a piece of it. Like, he, he had the, the the body language of a guy who wanted to stop fighting at that point. Yeah. Uh, I guess this last email, I want to read this last one-line email we got from George, which says, Chad Mendez retirement, will it stick? Now... I looked at the odds for this thing coming in and saw that Eddie Alvarez was the underdog. And I kind of was like, I don't see how you make Eddie Alvarez the underdog against a guy who was primarily a wrestler before he turned to the bare knuckle fighting. And then Eddie Alvarez comes out there, wins the fight and kind of pounds Chad Mendez into retirement. Chad Mendez in vocalizing his decision to quit after the fight spoke for all of us at some point during all of our lives when he basically said, I don't need to be doing this shit anymore. We all been there, right? We all been there at some point in our lives. We don't need to be doing this shit anymore, Ben folks. I, this whole quote, I like that. He says, I had no desire, but something like this came up and obviously the pay is really damn good. And it's something that's new, which kind of excited me. So I did it. I was done after the first one. And then they dangled someone like Alvarez in front of me. I'm like, all right, fuck. I'll do one more. This could be the retirement fight. I don't need to be doing this shit anymore. It's fun, but I feel like at this point, I'm just being selfish. I got a solid family that loves me and I got other things in the works that I can just pour my heart and soul into and be successful at. But man, that was a hell of a fight. And yeah, that is like honestly a very level-headed take on it that does make me think that the retirement yeah. will stick. And incredibly honest to say I was done with this shit after one, but then they offered me more money, which is probably like true for more fighters than we would want to admit. Yeah. Uh, and to, you know, I think it's very understandable, to, especially because it's like, okay, uh, you might want to do one bare knuckle boxing fight because hell, why not? See what it's like. You could say you did it. And then you make some good money and then they want, they offer you an interesting opponent, somebody where you felt like, oh yeah, you know, I remember watching that guy's fights and thinking that he had some great wars. I'd love to be able to say that I fought that guy in a bare knuckle boxing match. And so you do it. But also I've heard this sentiment from fighters a lot before is that feeling like, especially as they get older, that it is increasingly selfish of them because you have to be kind of selfish to live the life of a fighter, to get ready for the fight, to do all those things. You have to sort of be willing to turn off a lot of the other stuff going on in your life. And that is, especially when you get to a point where you have family, you have other people who care about you, it can start to feel unfair to them. Not only because you're, the time you have to spend focusing just on yourself, but also the increased risks that you're going to do some major damage to yourself. They're going to worry about you, all that stuff. And if you don't absolutely need to do it, if you do have other options, I could see how you start to feel like, you know what, this at a certain point, I can no longer justify continuing to do this. Yeah. And you, you, 
years, like he mentions how he started wrestling at five years old. Even if you start out with a ton of fire for combat sports, at a certain point, it gets sort of just ground out of you just from years and in, in, in this the meat grinder of a sport. Are you saying that at some point you start to think, I don't need to be doing this shit anymore? I don't need to be doing this shit anymore. I, I feel like we owe it to our listeners to move on from the talk of a topic of bare knuckle fighting. <laughs> but I just, the quite one question I would ask before we go on to this other stuff is where are they getting this money from? Man, we got all these fighters coming out here talking about, oh, they're paying us more than the UFC, et cetera, et cetera. Like, where? I mean, I, this is probably the cardinal sin of combat sports is to ask this question of any promoter ever. Where, where are you getting all this money, man? Where's all this money coming from? Uh, I assume Waystar is a heavy investor. Okay. Well, and then we're in good company then. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And we will move on to round number two. Ben, uh, we talked about this on the Power Hour last week, but I just got to reiterate another Are You Fucking Kidding Me? The New York Times found out about Hasbullah. Mm-hmm. And we went ahead and cranked out uh, probably a 2,500-word feature on the phenomenon of Hasbullah. But that, by the way, features a direct quote from your boy Ben Folks, longtime MMA journalist and podcaster as he is That's referred right. to by the gray lady, one of the world's largest news gathering organizations out here quoting Ben folks. This is what we talked about on uh, the, the power hour though, but like, this is like a uh, Michael Corleone Godfather three moment where we're like, I thought we were out of the Hasbula business and they keep pulling us back in. How is it that every time we, as the combat sports MMA community feel like we have gotten to the end of something, that is when the mainstream media is suddenly like, Oh, hey, there's this guy that everyone thinks is funny because he's tiny and it's it's really cringe, but also some people love it. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Just like, let us process our grief from the Hasbulla experiment and let's go on with our lives. We don't need the mainstream exposés at this point. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Chad, for my Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week, I am just going to read to you a headline followed by a couple snippets from the article itself. This one I'm reading over on MMAfighting.com from the big homie Damon Martin. The headline is, Endeavor CEO, UFC owner Ari Emanuel paid over $19 million in 2022 as company touts record revenue. Endeavor CEO and UFC owner Ari Emanuel took home just over $19 million in salary and bonuses for 2022 after previously earning an eye-popping $308 million payout in 2021 when the company went public for the first time. Uh, according to this SEC filing, Emanuel took home $4 million in flat salary in 2022 with another $8.2 million paid in bonuses along with $6 million in non-equity incentive compensation and $868,011 in, quote, other compensation. The astronomical amount paid in 2021 was due to a one-time stock grant tied to the company's initial public offering. So, uh, I'm just saying, happy May Day for one thing, and are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. When you say happy May Day, do you mean International Workers' Day? Is that... Is that one of the... fucking kidding me? you fucking kidding me. Okay, uh, that's going to do it for round number one. We're going to move on to round number two.
Well, Chad, over in the 170-pound division this week, we have ourselves what could be a very important fight for the title picture, or could be one of those fights that we're just saying is a very important fight for the title picture until it's over. We don't exactly totally know yet. We do know that Bilal Muhammad, lest you forget the name, <laughs> going to go in there, going to fight Gilbert Burns, who is making kind of a quick turnaround, just beat Jorge Masvidal last month, uh, turns right around here, fights Bilal Muhammad. Do we want to call this uh, a number one contender fight? Or we, do we want to just say this is one of those fights where it would be better to win than to lose? It depends how it goes, right? Like, isn't that just like everything else in the UFC? It depends how it goes. If these two guys go out there and, and have a tepid grappling based, this is a five rounder, right? Didn't we say we're doing five rounds, even though it's the co-main? If we go 25 minutes dominated by trying to find a better position on the ground, then it is probably dicey as to whether or not it actually turns out to be a number one contender fight. If we go out there and let it all hang out on the feet and give the UFC the kind of fight the UFC likes, maybe then it becomes a number one contender fight, or at the very least a hang-around kid, maybe cut the weight if anybody gets injured at the next title fight you are in. You're the backup kind of a thing. You said that Gilbert Burns is making a quick turnaround here after his last fight uh, against Jorge Masvidal. In fact, Ben, this will be Gilbert Burns' third fight of 2023. And here we are, May 1st, not even halfway through the year. And Gilbert Burns has uh, more fights than some guys will probably have during the entire calendar year. Bilal Muhammad has not fought since October of 2022. So Gilbert Burns kind of off to a blistering pace here to begin the year. And it kind of seems like maybe he's doing a Chad Mendes where they keep offering him money. Yeah, I also wonder if some of that is that you know, he made this climb to the title, uh, winning a bunch of fights in a row, goes in there, fights Kamar Usman, looks at some points in that fight like he was one or two punches away from becoming the new champ, uh, and then, you know, gets knocked out, loses, uh, you know, came back at the decision over Wonder Man, and then lost the decision to Hamzat, and it seemed like maybe after that one was kind of like, well... The days of sort of trying to carefully position yourself for a climb up the ranks toward the title might be over. Maybe now is the time to just fight as much as you can, make your money that way, and be the guy who's just sort of like down for whatever and saying yes to everything. And honestly, you can do worse than that because you fight Neil Magny, you know, you, you fight Jorge Masvidal, you end up here, as you said, your third fight in the, you know, we're just in the early five months stage of the year. And if now that you know you have Leon Edwards as the the welterweight champion, if you do end up in a situation where you're sort of looking around for guys who's going to be next and whose whose names are just sort of in the hat when we need to draw some for either due to circumstances or just the demands of the brutal UFC event schedule, it's worse things than that you could do than to be a guy who has been fighting a whole lot on people's minds and stacking some wins together. Speaking of guys who could be up next for Leon Edwards, Bilal Muhammad obviously has some history with the current champion. They fought back in March of 2021. It was not shaping up as a great matchup for Bilal Muhammad during that time. But then, of course, it ends with the accidental eye poke. It becomes a no contest. Aside from that fight, Bilal Muhammad has stacked up eight fights without a loss 
he is on a real tear here, including the TKO win over Sean Brady at UFC 280, as I said, in October of last year. He's got a couple of performance of the night bonuses in there as well. But this is a guy where you kind of get the impression that he's going to have to go out there and take it from the UFC. They're not just going to hand him a title shot uh, for unknown, unclear reasons. Like Dana White comes to a press conference and says, if not for Kamaru Usman, this guy would have been the champion a long time ago, as he said about Colby Covington. Uh, They're making Bilal Muhammad earn it every step of the way. Yeah. One thing that's interesting, I don't know if it's that maybe... He just doesn't seem like a super intimidating guy. Maybe he doesn't seem like one of the big, scary dudes of the division. But it seems like people just don't really believe in Bilal Muhammad. And one of the things I think is interesting is you, if you look at how the betting odds tend to go for his fights. Like the last one against Sean Brady, right? He opens as the favorite. And the, by the time he, it, he opens as a, as a kind of sizable favorite, he opened at like minus 225, a little more than two to one. By the time the fight closed, it had flipped where he was the underdog. And Sean Brady was the favorite because the, the money is just coming in on Sean Brady. So we fought Vicente Luque. He was the underdog. We fought Stephen Thompson. He's the underdog. It's like, I think people just keep looking at him and going like, okay, but he can't be that good. <laughs> like, even if he wins these fights, we he just can't be that good. And then he keeps showing that, you know, actually he is pretty good. And it makes you wonder like what it's going to take. Like if he goes out there, if he beats Gilbert Burns, say he beats him by decision, five rounds, a lot of time to work in there, you know, really show a thorough performance, a little bit of everything. Say he beats Gilbert Burns. Do you think then people go like, okay, Bilal Muhammad, we're excited about it. Or does he just have to be sort of the last guy standing when you need somebody? I mean, again, I feel like it really depends on uh, how things go physically. I mean, there's, we know damn well, good and well in this sport. It's a what have you done for me lately? kind of a thing it is mma may be the sport most affected by recency bias whatever the last thing that we see is is the greatest thing we've ever seen in our lives and that's the person who has to get the title shot but you know like i said Bilal muhammad seems to have like an easy marketing chip behind him against leon edwards if that's who he was going to fight to be like look man these guys tried to do it once before and it ended in this no contest and now he's won eight fights and they're going to do it again and etc etc in terms of like people not believing in him do you think it's because he's too nice because Bilal Muhammad, has, he's one of the guys in this sport that has really embraced social media it seems like he is very good at getting uh Lack, you'll, you'll excuse the pun, his name out there uh, seems to be doing a good job with that. Is he? Does he come off as like too affable? Is he too jokey? Is it too much of the silly little guy energy or, or like what's happening here? Or is that he is too accessible to us, that he feels like one of us, feels like somebody from MMA Twitter was promoted into UFC contender status somehow? <laughs> yeah. And we go, well, okay, but is he going to get his ass kicked sooner or later, right? Um, I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. But honestly, at this point, I mean, the guy's been in the UFC since 2016, which just that sort of uninterrupted longevity and especially being a a top 10 guy in the division, that doesn't happen on accident. If you are not really good enough for it, you can get found out before then. You know, that's always the way it goes. So like at some point, people need to realize like he, whether you 
you see him and you just don't think super scary fighter dude or whatever it is. He is actually quite good. Yeah. You know, I think that that Sean Brady fight probably should have been the one that showed people that because Sean Brady comes in there with a lot of momentum undefeated and Bilal Muhammad puts him away inside of two rounds. You know, like that that's the kind of thing that should show you like he really is a serious dude in that division. Do we have the odds in front of us? Can we tell the people who's the favorite in the Bilal Muhammad Gilbert Burns fight as of this recording? Gilbert Burns, a slight favorite coming into this one. You're looking at about minus 130 on uh, Gilbert Burns, plus 110 on Bilal Muhammad. Uh, So the classic Bilal Muhammad story then. Uh, Yep. Pretty much. Is Gilbert Burns kind of a bad matchup for him, I I wonder, just because of the submission ability. But Gilbert Burns is out here grinding out more decisions uh, as of late. I don't know, man. I I don't know that Bilal Muhammad is the kind of guy you want to try to grind out a decision against if that's your your strategy. This seems like a tough one to call for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that Bilal Muhammad is kind of chronically underestimated. I also, when I see a guy uh, putting... this many miles on the odometer as Gilbert Burns is doing this year. I history tells us that he sometimes can reach a point of diminishing returns on that. Yeah, 36 year old Gilbert Burns. All right, it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out and what the spoils are for the winner. That's going to do it for round number two. We will be back momentarily with round number three. Ben, the competitive fire inside Henry Cejudo will not die. Or maybe the money ran out. Or maybe he never meant to retire in the first place. One of the saddest scenes that I can recall is following Henry Cejudo's UFC 249 win over Dominic Cruz. Him coming out and saying he was retired. And instead of trying to make him a better offer or trying to talk him into staying at all, Dana White immediately shows up at the press conference and is like, well, I guess we're going to need to find a new bantamweight champ because Henry Cejudo tells me he's fired. That was as quick as we've ever seen the page turned on a UFC champion. Normally, they'd be like, oh, we'll talk about it. You know, we'll see if we can get something together immediately. They're like, I guess the belt's vacant. So that's moving on is what they said. That's some evidence to make you to suggest that maybe Henry Cejudo was after a better contract here. I don't know. Nonetheless, he returns this weekend, his first fight since that victory over Cruz in May of 2020. Henry Cejudo at this point, Ben, 36 years old, and he'll be squared off with Aljamain Sterling, who has been a champion that has had to, again, earn his respect every step of the way from UFC fans. Uh, but is undefeated since December 2017 and has been relatively busy as the champion. What are Cejudo's chances here? You know, this one is a really interesting fight for me, especially because I feel like this should be a much bigger deal yeah. than it actually is. And and maybe this is sort of gets back to our whole thing about how Henry Cejudo said, you know, if you don't make me a better deal, I'm gone. And they said, well, it was nice having you. <laughs> uh, because as we've talked about before, on paper, Henry Cejudo has a legit claim to being one of, if not the greatest combat sports athletes of all time. 
Olympic gold medalist who then comes to the UFC and becomes a two-division champ in the UFC and walks away sort of on top. That's like, if you told us that we had somebody like that, we would have told you that's exactly what we were looking around for. Yeah. And yet, when we're having those GOAT conversations, his name doesn't even come up, really. And... I mean, I get it to some extent. I, I think some of that is people looked at that when he had over Mighty Mouse and are like, well, I think he maybe got a a kind decision there, a little bit of a generous decision from the judges. But, you know, you look at it, what he did after that, like clearly the guy is a legit fighter. He walks away, though, for three years and comes back. You do wonder, should you have stayed gone? Because this is the kind of fight where you come back against a guy who is the the champ who is sort of at the height of his powers and has been looking good. And you're going to come in there with, you know, a skill set that he is definitely familiar with. It's not like Aljamain Sterling gets super worried hearing that somebody is a good wrestler. Yeah. Like that's kind of his whole shit. Um, but also has himself sort of a difficult style to prepare for. And you haven't really been in the game. Like, I mean, I know you've been in the gym and everything, you've been training guys, all that stuff, but it's not the same. It, this seems like the anticipation for something like this should be a lot higher than what it feels like there is. Yeah, I agree. And it probably just once again comes down to the idea that we never really embraced Henry Cejudo in this sport mm-hmm. and maybe acknowledged that he was quite good as a fighter, but again, just kind of never really bought into him personally or bought into him as a draw. And of course we all remember how much he leaned into that perhaps at some point to his own detriment. But I always said, you know, you got to give Henry Cejudo some credit, I think for realizing what he had in terms of marketability and trying to play it up as annoying as that turned out to be for a lot of people, but you don't want to discount the guy athletically even if he rolls into this thing off on the heels of a of an extended break it's hard for me to look at this fight and and completely discount Sahudo to completely count him out i don't think that at all you know you go back to uh his previous appearances in the ufc how quickly he was able to put together a relatively well-rounded skill set for mixed martial arts. You know, the UFC 238 fight against Marlon Moraes, where he was in trouble early and kind of put it back together to get a third round win. And that is, is one of the more impressive championship performances that I can recall off the top of my head. So Henry Cejudo is very, very good. And I think the question will be, can he just like knock off the ring rust? If you believe that that is a thing and come in against sort of a streaking Aljamain Sterling, who has been outstanding during all of his more recent appearances. And also, you know, maybe he has a a tough matchup of styles for Cejudo, not only with his wrestling, you'd think in a pure wrestling game, Cejudo would be better. But uh, Sterling also has that pretty slick submission game which is uh, could be a danger here for Henry Zudo. So I don't know. I agree. This is a fight where I don't totally know what's going to happen. I'm excited to see what happens. And I totally agree with you that this seems like the kind of thing that you would promote more heavily if it wasn't two guys in this fight that, for whatever reason, MMA fans just have kind of refused to embrace. Yeah. Uh, and yet, stylistically, and as far as you know, each guy's sort of legacy and where they stand, uh, I think it is a very interesting big fight. I also keep thinking about the thing that Ray Longo said, as you pointed out, very you know maybe uh, worrying about problems before they have come to pass, but saying 
when Aljamain beats Henry Cejudo, he won't get the full credit he deserves for it because of, you know, pe- here's what people will say. And it's like, I heard that and I heard his exact reasoning, what the things he said people were going to say. And I was like, that's a guy who knows this sport. Yeah, he's been around the fans block. pretty well. <laughs> yes, it's he's not, been in uh, this for a while. It's not Ray Longo's first rodeo. But it also would not be a news flash. It would not be the first time Ultimate Sterling had not gotten the credit he deserves. That's kind of been the story of his career at every turn up to this point. Yeah. What are we doing odds-wise here? Well, looks like what we got here is Aljamain Sterling as a slight favorite, minus 120. Uh, Also, some people have him as low as minus 105, and Henry Cejudo at about plus 100. Hmm. It's close to a pickup. Yeah, that's closer than I would have thought, although I do think that Aljamain Sterling rightly should be a slight favorite. That's interesting, though. It's a very close close fight here. That's going to be fun to watch, although at the top of a... UFC 288 card that I don't think quite lives up to the blockbuster standard that perhaps we have come to expect from these UFC pay-per-views where it's pretty clear over the last couple of years the uh, the goal is to kind of throw out whatever you have for these fight night cards and then stock the pay-per-view cards as much as you can. Aljamain Sterling and Henry Zahudo, as we said, is the main event, welterweight, co-main, Bilal Muhammad and Gilbert Burns, and then just like a lot of odds and ends kind of jangling around in this thing. Uh, your guy, Drew Dober, is going to make an appearance. Hell yeah. Uh, Chaos Williams, man in MMA. Jessica Andrade, Movsar uh, Evolev against uh, Evolev against Bryce Mitchell, Crone Gracie on this thing. Uh, so, you know, there's uh, there's some names, but it's just, it's, you can't, I don't know that you can put your finger on anyone and be like, oh, that's a, that's a big fight right there. Yeah. All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, I saw a story over here on MMA fighting by the big homie Guillermo Cruz. He writes, Artem Vakhatov, nailed it, yeah. is officially making the transition to MMA in June. The two-time glory light heavyweight champion and last man to beat former UFC champion Alex Pereira in kickboxing will enter a cage to fight Ashraf Bashandi in a 205-pound contest uh, in Russia June 11th. I'm just saying, so you're telling me that after Israel Adesanya went from kickboxing to MMA, and the guy who beat him in kickboxing, Alex Pereira, went from kickboxing to MMA, and now the guy who beat Alex Pereira in kickboxing has gone from kickboxing to MMA. I'm just saying, let's save ourselves some time and ask who was the last person to beat Artem Vakitov. <laughs> you think it's just going to be an endless let's chain? Just, it's a snake eating its right own to, tail. Skip to the next stage, you know? I'm just saying. I mean, it would be a taste of his own medicine, right? Mm-hmm. To have, mm-hmm. uh, to have this happen to Alex Pereira just in the same way that it happened to Israel Adesanya? Just, you know, uh, if this is what we're doing, fine. Let's all just go right down the, the list. Go right down the, the somebody's uh, fight record in kickboxing and just be like, okay, do we do we have to show up at this guy's gym and be like, are you ready to do MMA yet? I'm down. Yeah, I guess, man. I, I don't know. Well, Ben, did you see Arena Alexiva this weekend? She went out there... Uh, and uh, got a win at this fight night event on the undercard, defeated Stephanie Egger in a fight that was a 140-pound catch weight after Alex Eva missed weight. Did you did you see what we got going on here with uh, Arena, Alex Eva? I did not. Interesting set of tattoos 
on okay. Arena Alexeva. She has the words "Love Me" tattooed right across the the upper middle collarbone area, the area where you would normally get no regrets tattooed yeah. on your body. She, okay. She's got kind of like block letters, a, a, a slight serif. It says "Love Me" across the front. She has got on her right shoulder. The two fingers touching from uh, what is it? Uh, you know the Sistine Chapel. The oh yeah, the the, the God reaching out to create life, basically. Yeah, and it's superimposed over a breaking red heart. And then okay. it's, it seems like maybe we got some some tattoos that maybe we had removed. Anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to get sidetracked because that's not even what the uh, just saying stuff is about. Uh, her nickname, Ben, Arena Alexeva's nickname is the Russian Ronda Rousey. Hmm. That's her nickname. To which this week, I'm just saying, you know how we frequently ask the question of whether or not these fighters and, frankly, rappers ever watched the end of Scarface? <laughs> you know how maybe we wonder, like, maybe they turned it off halfway and they're like, oh, and just, I bet everything turned out great for Tony Montana. Seemed like he was riding mm-hmm. high there about the middle of the movie, I assume. Happily ever after. Everything just kept getting better and better. Maybe Arena Alexeva only saw the beginning of Ronda Rousey's career. And she was like, well, she must still be the champ. Undefeated. Probably going down in history as the greatest of all time. I'll go ahead and call myself the Russian Ronda Rousey. Just saying, and I don't know, just saying. Just saying, I don't think you ought to be able to do that. No, I agree. It's kind of a weird choice. Yeah. She also apparently hit the Conor McGregor Billy strut walk after a recent win. So all this tells me she's just a casual. You know what I mean? She's got the Conor McGregor walk. (laughs) She's called the Russian Ron. What next? She's going to show up with a big sword tattooed on her sternum? Is that Mm -hmm. what we're doing? You're going to do it like that? Why not? Okay. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this week's co-main event podcast. We are going to get into after hours for the $20 patrons of the co-main event. Uh, Thanks to everyone else for listening. We will talk to you guys either over on the Patreon or next week right here for free on the proper. Stay tuned, $20 patrons. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. Ben, how much sleep did you get last night after the Seattle Kraken stormed to victory over the Colorado Avalanche? Chad, I was buzzing. I was buzzing hard in here. Hooting and hollering. When that clock ticked all the way down, and I realized, holy shit, the Kraken done did it. Yeah, these beautiful sons of bitches pulled it off. I, I mean, I we were texting each other as this game was going, and I felt like I've... I don't know when the last time I experienced acute anxiety like that was yeah. watching this game. I felt like I died about three times. Yeah.